Namotasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Samasambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Samasambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Samasambhutasa Bhutang Dhamang Sangang Namasami So um, tonight is Friday, tomorrow is Saturday. And this is the last talk that one of the sisters will be giving because tomorrow night you get to give the Dhamma talk. So what we had envisioned was uh, we would have a sharing and people could share reflections that they wanted to about the retreat or uh, insights that they had or pertinent reflections. and. Rather than squeeze all of that in a closing ceremony and on Sunday we would have the sharing tomorrow night and closing ceremony didn't have to be so tight. Okay. So being the last Dhamma talk of the retreat, I wanted to reflect a little bit on um, integrating uh, path into daily life. There have been many people during groups who've been bringing it to mind and talking about various emotions arising and anticipation and fear and excitement and all that goes on with thinking about home, which is inevitable at this kind of a retreat where the end is in sight, that you want the transition is happening. And so the activity of mind is, 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 is moving towards you know, what's next. And for different people, there's different experiences about what's next. For some, there's uh, anxiety, and for other, there's excitement and joy, and and uh, some feel sad, and some feel really enriched with the whole experience here, and, and very interested and curious to see how it's going to pan out and play out in in the next part of the retreat, which includes going home. So. You know, the way we teach, the emphasis has been on bringing awareness into practice into every part of our life and not just on focusing on specific techniques. And, um, and with that, there is a natural flow that would move into daily life because it's not based on cultivating conditions in a particular way. It's based on waking up to how conditions are. And so we can do that wherever we are. And yet, for many, um, the contemplation is a genuine one and a, and a worthwhile one to investigate of, you know, how do we bring the richness of a, of a spiritual life into the complexity of our, of our world and our daily life? And so I thought uh, this evening just to expand on that theme somewhat and re-examine the Eightfold Path in light of uh, that kind of exploration of you know, outside of a retreat context, what does it look like? So, <clears throat> if I step back a bit, take a global perspective, and just for a moment imagine that we haven't just been on a 10-day retreat where we were um, talking about uh, all of these factors and talking about practice and talking about the possibility of awakening. So if I step back and I think, you know, as it as a human being, independent of a spiritual practice, independent of an aspiration to be free from suffering, 
independent of any religious affiliation at all or any inclination to really wake up at all. What's important? So, you know, sometimes it's helpful just to come back down to ground zero and just look from that perspective, you know, what's important? And I reflect on this myself, but I would encourage you to reflect on this. So don't just take what I have to offer as the truth. What is important as a human being? Well, that would be an interesting discussion if we gave that some time and invited everyone's comments and responses. When I step back and look at that, it comes very much into what Ajahn Metta was reflecting on at the mealtime, the sense of interconnectedness. And if I am wanting to live a, a kind of a basically healthy life, as a human being, independent of my religious affiliation, independent of any sense or understanding of the possibility of waking up out of suffering. There would need to be a basic sense of well-being in relationship with my body, with the moods and emotions I have, and with my beliefs. And because we don't exist as independent lumps, separate, then it would naturally also need to be a right relationship with family, with community, including the way we earn a living, and including the way we relate to the world. So our sense of well-being from the most basic level is connected through relationship. And when we look at that from this kind of perspective, which is global, you know, there are many factors that come into play that we've seen already in the course of our uh, discussions and in the course of the sutta readings and in the course of our own inquiry. Certainly not harming is a feature in having a healthy relationship with oneself and others. And the qualities of generosity, uh, the qualities of energy, the qualities of being able to understand, these are all present. And we can see that in our own life we can see that in our own relationship, coming into right relationship with our own personal experience. And we can certainly see how that works in a family. You know, so often in a family system, we're in a position where we're having to relinquish our own immediate needs for the welfare of the family. And so prioritizing the needs of the family sometimes takes precedence over one's own needs. And there's an there's a, an element of discernment in that, an element of kindness in that, an element of generosity in that, an element of effort in that, to do the thing that's the best thing for the family. 
And we can see in a family, you know, one of the things which makes the difference between a healthy family and an unhealthy family is, is the way we talk about each other and with each other. And so nothing really can kind of shred or ravel a family faster than when we start speaking in ways which is harsh or abusive or deceitful. You know, dismantling the trust of a family is, takes quite a lot to recover from. So speaking skillfully, honestly, in right measure at the right time is a skillful thing to do if one wants to have a healthy family. And also in a community, the same thing is true. Nothing dismantles a community faster than wrong speech. When we start speaking about somebody's negativity with the intention of somehow causing harm. And so we can look and see how these simple ingredients of intelligence and compassion and non-harming and ethics and behavior and generosity, effort, play out in the simplest level, independent of our religious affiliation, independent of our aspiration, independent of our understanding of, of the deepest possibility of what one can awaken to. And we can see that we have a, a local community and we have a, a larger community. And we are becoming very present, uh, aware of the fact that there's a global community. And, you know, what happens with Chernobyl affects all kinds of places. And there really is no backyard that you can pour your toxicity because it all somehow connects to everything else. And what's on people's minds a lot is, is the concern about the environment. Because when there's too much poison in the air and in the water, you can't breathe, you can't drink, the food is not healthy. And so when we are interested in living in a way which is in right relationship, these things immediately are things that come to our minds about how do we live in a way where we are causing as little harm as possible and maximizing the potential for uh, right relationship. And so it's natural then to consider things like, well, what kind of, of, of uh, solvents do I use? What kind of cleaning materials do I use? How much do I use? Where do I dispose of them? How do I dispose of them? As a natural extension of right relationship. You know, these are all worthy of consideration. And so even in this kind of global way, without being too specific, you can see how many of the ingredients that we've been talking about come into the arena. Now, one of the things that I find really important to consider is, is, is that if there is a, an aspiration to wake up, to be completely free from suffering, to uh, do whatever one can to realize that, then it shouldn't on any level conflict with one's 
most simple and basic understanding of what it is to be a decent human being. And the reason why I bring that up is because oftentimes in an overzealous interest to wake up, the simplest things get forgotten about what it is to be kind to people or to realize that somehow we're all in this boat together. And so it's helpful when one opens up the subject for reflection to consider if ever there are spiritual practices or ways of being or styles of relating that one takes on in one's aspiration to be completely free from suffering that are in conflict with what it is to be a decent human being, then it is worthwhile questioning those practices. Let me just um, tell a little story, which is part of the reason why this comes into the conversation. I had some friends who were at the um, tsunami uh, sites in Thailand, and they were helping, and they told the story of uh, something that they had heard, and these were reliable people, so that it wouldn't have been a contrived story. And, um, and they said that there was an area in uh, Indonesia that had been cut off from supplies for two weeks. And when the first people came to offer supplies, um, it was a group of people who were um, very uh, tenacious of their own religious views. And the village that they encountered, who hadn't had any medicine, food, clothing, water for two weeks, were Hindu. And they had a sacred shrine there that they uh, worshipped and had a lot of faith in their own religious beliefs and religious practices. And this group that had water and clothing and medicine and food on their track came into this village and asked the villagers to convert to their religion. And the villagers said, thank you very much, but we're quite happy as we are. And the people with the supplies got in the truck, turned around, and left. And when I hear stories like that, it makes my blood curdle. And I think, you know, if this is what spirituality does to people, who needs it? You know? And it's just interesting how, um, I don't know why it is that way, but sometimes it is that way. That people get so enthusiastic about their understanding, that it completely shifts people's capacity to keep things in perspective.
So keeping things in perspective, to me, is an essential part of right view. And looking at this in a kind of global way is a, an important part of our own internal reflections of how we take up practices and live in the world on a path of awakening. The second. So then, um, if one is interested in uh, living a life uh, with an aspiration to awaken, and then one begins to take something like the Eightfold Path as a, as a uh, framework, just uh, considering it in a in a way where it might be applicable, or how we might consider that in a, in a daily life context. So the second of the Eightfold Path is right thought. And the classic uh, references to right thought are the thought of non-harming, the thought of renunciation, and the thought of um, harmlessness. They said non-ill will, harmlessness, and renunciation. They've got them both. Yeah. And so when we think about that in terms of our own practice, what is renunciation? Or how can we relate to renunciation in a way that is relevant? So. Obviously, there's no requirement that people uh, shave your head or wear robes or eat two meals a day. Um, this is a lifestyle that monastics uh, use uh, for a variety of reasons, partly because it's just simple and, uh, and partly because it helps reflect to us what our life aspirations are about and help mirrors for other people that there is, they're all alternatives. But it is, it's possible within one's own standard of living to really look at how much is enough. How many pairs of shoes are needed? How many sets of clothing are needed? How many refrigerators are needed? And there aren't right answers to these questions. But I think if we are willing to take up the question and investigate it, and begin to really consider what is really needed, then we can come into our own understanding of well, what is a right renunciation in our own lifestyle. Yeah. What kind of food is needed? How many times do we need to go out? You know, how do we use our money? How do we use our resources? How warm do the rooms need to be heated? Simple questions, but they end up having an effect on the kind of amount of resources that one uses, the amount of energy that is used, and the kind of the way that we take things and consider them. For many people uh, on this retreat, there's been a, certainly a lot of reflection about the quality of judgment that comes up. 
and the habits of mind that we experience which are not kind. And as vid vigilant as we are about watching those as habits, then there's considerably much greater possibility that we're not acting them out. We're not believing them, we're not acting them out, and we're not putting them on other people. So this vigilance to see something as harmful will support non-harming. Non and in the thoughts, the way we construct thoughts, then what follows is speech, and then what follows speech is action. And so when we begin to make an effort to not allow thoughts which are harmful to be believed in or followed, then it'll naturally follow our speech and our actions will reflect that. When we're looking at speech and we're looking at uh, refraining from speaking that which is untrue, uh, speaking that which is uh, slanderous or harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech, um, again, we can see that when we contemplate the whole way that we speak about uh, people or situations or communities or leaders, it has a, quite a significant impact on the level of trust that's present or absent. And in the monastic uh, discipline, there are more rules about right speech than there are about anything else. And there are pages and pages and pages of references on how to bring uh, qualities of mind uh, when one's giving reflections or receiving reflections or how to consider what is needed in order to do that in a way which is skillful. And for all of us, this has been uh, a learning. And certainly we have crossed through a lot of turbulent water in that learning. And we've picked up tools that have been useful. So, you know, one of the tools, for example, that the community has spent some time in, not entirely committed to it, but some people have expressed and shown some interest is Marshall Rosenberg's uh, nonviolent communication. How does one pick up the skill of communication and learn how to work with offering feedback and receiving feedback in a way which is helpful? And so we can develop tools that support that ability to communicate. And learning how to include um, people's um, different opinions in our decision-making process, learning how to facilitate meetings, learning how to conduct our business in a way which is harmonious and conducive, has been skills that we've needed to learn. They don't naturally just come with ordaining. They don't naturally just come with wanting to be part of a community. And so because the consequence is uh, unwholesome when the skills are not present, it motivates taking the time and the energy to learn how to develop these skills because it supports harmlessness, it supports harmony, it supports uh, 
collaborative decision making that ends up being for the benefit of the of the collective of the whole and so these are uh, things that we've needed to cultivate and personally i feel quite a lot of pride really joy to see the amount of skill that has developed in the last uh, years amongst the sisters and their capacity to do that hold tremendous complexity be able to attend to a variety of different levels that are requiring a variety of different responses and do that in a way which is able to attend to business it's impressive you know mm. And then what is right action? So right action is another of the Eightfold Path. It's refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct, and that's called right action. So again, in taking life, um, you know, the, the, the classic is, is uh, you know, the references is not to take the life of human beings or animals, but people who... Um, like when Ajahn Chah was visiting uh, fishermen in the villages in Thailand, he didn't talk about not fishing, he talked about not killing each other. And so, uh, again, the precept needs to be understood or the, the principle needs to be understood according to the context that one is living with. And for each of us, what does non-harming mean and what level we are willing to live that is something that each of us needs to reflect on. For me, one of the areas that I'd like to offer just a little bit of encouragement with was, is the area of um, uh, right relationship with one's own sexuality. So there are clear designation of what constitutes sexual misconduct, and uh, it has to do with having relationships with people who are in committed partnerships already, having relationships with people who are minors, having relationships with people where there isn't kindness or respect, where there's, uh, where there's uh, any kind of harm that's taking place. And so on, on that level, there's clarity about what, it, what constitutes a harmful relationship. But in terms of the arena of right relationship with sexuality, it doesn't begin to touch the topic of what is needed in order to open up this whole field and so that there's a sense of health, there's a sense of ease, there's a sense of well-being, and it is an included part of one's practice. And so I would just like to take a moment to say it doesn't matter whether one's partnered or one's celibate, that this is a topic that's worthy of attention, it's worthy of bringing into one's spiritual practice, and it's worthy of bringing uh, whatever is needed so that this whole force, this life force, can be included in one's spiritual practice for the purpose of awakening. And what specific ways individual people investigate this is, uh, that would be a rich topic that would require more specific conversation around. But I know often is the case that what happens is, is, is that people come on retreat and they take the eight precepts and they're holy and pure, and it's never talked about really in much detail, and then they leave the retreat, and this whole topic is not really considered a topic that is worthy of investigation or worthy of including in one's uh, spiritual life. 
And so I'd just like to put a question mark around that attitude and say that, that this is an area where there's a lot of energy. And when energy is used in a way which is skillful and wholesome, it leads to skillful and wholesome results and can be a tremendous source of understanding and insight. And not to ignore it or uh, avoid it or to feel that it's not something that is important to work with. The topic of right livelihood uh, traditionally includes not engaging in any of the specific actions which are harmful, which include dealing with drink, with drugs, with arms, with raising animals for slaughter, or in any kind of, of um, servitude of people. And yet, again, it leaves so much area um, unnegotiated, so many areas that are gray, so many places that need to be uh, taken up and considered for oneself, that sometimes with this, it's uh, really helpful to have a group of people to talk about this together so that one isn't just trying to figure it all out by oneself. And so then coming to the whole topic of right effort, you know, in, in the topic of right effort, classically, it's talking about the four efforts to maintain wholesome states and to, uh, to allow unwholesome states to arise. But in terms of this global perspective, I think one of the right efforts that's needed is how to support spiritual practice in a way where we are nourished, where our sense of community is nourished, where our sense of spiritual friendship is nourished. And so expanding the view from it just being the specifics of what's happening in our, the immediacy of our meditation, what can be included is how does one engage in the effort so that the right relationship with self, with family, with community, with the global community and the world, the resources of the world, is supported in a way that allows for ease and well-being and confidence to emerge. Now, IMS is in a remarkable resource, and many of you have been coming here for many years, and I know many of you have small groups that are also a nourishment, and you can connect with each other that way. And, you know, I, don't, I haven't spent much time in the States, and I don't know the East Coast very well, so I don't know the networking systems that are present, but I know this general area is rich with Dharma communities and groups, and that gladdens my heart because when people meet together, there is a way in which there's a support for practice that's possible, uh, that bridges the gap between what happens in a meditation retreat and the rest of our lives. And one of the ways that that gap can be bridged is, is that people can begin to pick up these topics of what is right livelihood, and how does one wrestle with the myriad levels of gray area in a way that feels congruent with one's values and also doesn't put one at risk in terms of one's uh, work situations? They're not easy topics, but they certainly uh, don't go away by ignoring them.
there have been many people who have come and uh, were talking a little bit about apprehension about leaving the retreat. And one of the reasons that comes when we discuss a little bit more about the apprehension has to do with a, an often um, uh, a kind of um, misunderstanding about the difference between mindfulness and concentration. And so it often is the case when people come on a retreat with the conditions being the way they are, that um, concentration naturally arises and the body relaxes and the mind becomes more clear and more still. There's more capacity to be present with things as they arise. There's more insight that's arising in terms of the moment-to-moment experience of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. And the concentration then is what one takes to be the fruit of meditation rather than the capacity to be present with things as they are. And then when one leaves the retreat and goes out into the city and has to deal with the 150 emails that are waiting and the telephone calls and the pile of mail and and cook dinner and have a conversation with one's children and speak on the telephone all at the same time, it's quite (laughs) natural that the concentration diminishes because the conditions are not present to support it. And then people feel overwhelmed or they feel like they've lost it or they feel that you know the fruits of practice are slipping away. And what's slipping away is the concentration, which is a conditioned experience that comes when certain things are in place and other things are absent. But what hasn't slipped away is this kind of basic capacity to be present with things as they are. Okay, so one can certainly see that an ability to put the world down and just let it rest, you know, to get that mad monkey off of one's back has tremendous value and people can feel nourished just by the capacity to do that. So developing ways to support that is skillful but it's really important not to confuse the two. Feeling overwhelmed, disoriented, confused is a perfectly valid object of meditation. And I can assure you that nearly all of us experience that and practice with that regularly. You know, just because we live in a monastery doesn't mean that we don't feel overwhelmed and confused and unsettled and disoriented. It's just that one learns how to relate to those experiences in ways where there is less anxiety producing because we're not reacting, we're not frightened by it, we're not contracting around it, we're not expecting it not to be there. So that basic mantra of what's happening now and how am I relating to it is a universal mantra. You can take it into anywhere and everywhere you go. And that helps clarify mindfulness as opposed to concentration in the the middle of whatever is arising, okay? That being the case, it's helpful to have times when one can let the practice deepen. And, you know, times for retreat, time for being out in nature, time for allowing the mind to settle is helpful. Now, We have spent a lot of time encouraging people to trust themselves, and people are getting it, and we're delighted by that. You know, you're finally feeling confident to follow your own rhythms. But even still, there's an overemphasis on sitting as what meditation is. It's sort of some kind of a group think, you know? And so, you know, one has a sense that if you you have a formal meditation practice, then it is 
it's required, I don't know by whom, but by somebody, it's required that you sit. Okay? Now, people spend time in offices, people spend time in lecture halls, people spend time sitting hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day. And if you just think about it for a moment, somebody who spends hours and hours and hours and hours a day sitting doesn't need to sit anymore. <laughs> and so one of the things which is needed in having a meditation practice which is nourishing is being able to discern what is actually needed rather than forcing oneself into an idea about how it is supposed to be. And that capacity to bring discernment to one's meditation practice, to support each other in doing that, and to create time and space for that is one of the things that really helps bridge this apparent chasm between being on retreat and off retreat. Because what works in a retreat is maybe not be what works when you're not on retreat. Some people are much more nourished by routine. If they have a time every day that they sit come hell or high water, it's really helpful. They just have a time for their minds to stop and to still and to steady, and they do that no matter what. Other people are strangled by routine. So there are no right answers. It's not helpful to use things in order to disperse the mind, distract, and to lose connection with what's important. It is important to find ways that support settling, clarity, ease, and well-being. and support each other in doing that. So one of the ways that a community can function and one of the ways that a sister's community can function is, is that we can support each other to remember the positive qualities about ourselves when we forget them. So when we get lost in a tangle or get lost in a pattern or get lost in some kind of a spin, when some other sister comes and just mirrors for us, it's actually not always like that and reminds us of our own goodness, and reminds us of our own aspiration. This is a way a community that is healthy can support each other. And so it's not only about just being together in stillness, it's about being together in friendship, and helping each other in that way. I think I'd like to um, close with a few stories. They're both true. The first story is about a man by the name of Max who I met when I was in Australia. And he was one of these super genius types. He was uh, really smart with computers, and he was involved with designing a, a solar-powered motorboat. 
and designing the computer software to rotate the solar panels so that it would be directed towards the sun and the boat would get powered by the energy. And this project was a project that they had geared up for, um, it was going to be a kind of showcase for the Sydney Olympics. So they had a time pressure because the Sydney Olympics was happening and they wanted to get the boat. It was going to be the boat that took some of the visiting dignitaries around the Sydney Harbor. So he was working like a crazy person, long days, long hours, and committed to what he was doing. He loved what he did, but he was working really hard. And he was a very passionate practitioner. He loved meditation. And there's a meditation, there's a monastery south of Sydney called Wollongong Temple, which is a Mahayana temple. And in a Mahayana temple, they have um, the uh, appreciation that even if you take the monastic vows for a short time, that there's a lot of merit in doing that. So IMS gives 10-day retreats. That Wollongong gave 10-day monastic retreats where people would become monks or nuns for 10 days. And they would shave their heads and they'd take the vows and they'd take the robes and they'd do the practice for 10 days and at the end of the 10 days they'd give back their robes and some of their vows and not their hair. <laughs> And uh, Max was delighted because he was able to go on this retreat. So it was a little bit touch and go because there was a lot of pressure to get this project done. And you know the project had a priority. But he got the project done. He went on the retreat. He was absolutely delighted to be on this retreat. And the end of the retreat came, and his wife Daphne came to pick him up, and then somehow in the process of leave-taking, he needed to use the toilet, went to the toilet, blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. So they stop into the hospital, and they have a whole series of tests, and the doctors come back with advanced renal cancer. Mm -hmm. He's got three weeks to live. So Max said, all right, I've got three weeks to live. What's important? I mean, it's a relevant question. What's important? And he said, you know, really what's important is, is that I in some way adequately express to my family and friends how much I love them. That's important. And then he said, you know, and..." The thing that is going to most enable me to do that is if I love and accept myself. And something between the intensity of the situation and the circumstance and his aspiration and the ripeness. And it was as if everything that was keeping him from completely loving himself just fell away. And he was resting in this abiding love. And I met him, and he had cancer everywhere. He had cancer in his spine, in his brain, in his heart, in his liver. He had cancer everywhere. And he was absolutely luminous. He was just radiant. And 
everyone loved to hang out with Max. You know, the orderlies and the people filling up the gas and the grocery people. Because somehow Max got it. He really wasn't going anywhere. His body was dying, that was clear. But he wasn't going anywhere. And so it's an interesting question that he leaves us with. Two questions, really. What's important? And what is it going to take so that we love ourselves completely? So that we are resting in a quality of love as an abiding place, as the essence of our being. The other story I want to share I usually cry when I tell this story, but we'll all survive that. It's also a true story, and I can't remember when I first heard it, but a man who was the father of a very severely developmentally disabled son was giving a talk to an auditorium full of parents who had developmentally disabled children. And he starts the talk by saying, when I think about my son, I sometimes question the place he fits in this universe. Can you imagine being a dad, saying that, thinking that, feeling that? And then he goes on to tell this story. He was walking somewhere and they were in a park and there were a bunch of kids and they were playing baseball. And his son came up to him and said, Dad, I want to play ball. And so he thought, well, what am I going to do? The least I can do is ask. So he goes up to the kids and he goes to the pitcher and he says somehow that his son wanted to play ball. Now, how long does it take kids to sort out something's up with someone else? And this pitcher was in a pickle because he was making a decision that was going to affect the whole team. And he didn't have a, a time to call time out. He was on the spot and needed to make the decision. And so he said, yeah, he can play ball. 
So he's out in the field with his mitt, and he's not catching anything. He's just one of the boys playing ball, and he's smiling from ear to ear, and he's absolutely ecstatic to be one of the boys playing ball. And then time passes, and there are a few innings that happened, and it was that side's team to bat, and somehow it was his turn to up at bat. You know, and for him just to hold the bat was a project, you know, not at all straightforward. So bat, pitcher moved in close and threw the baseball right at the bat. And it missed, which was no surprise. And he picked up the ball again and he moved in closer still and very softly and very gently he threw the baseball right at the bat and it connected and it rolled two inches and the pitcher ran and caught that ball and turned around and heaved it out into left field and everyone on his team said drop the bat and run over there <laughs> drop the bat and run that way go over there that way you know and he was confused and disoriented and didn't know what to do but he figured it out he dropped the bat and he got going in the right direction and then the guy in left field caught the ball and heaved it out into right field <laughs> and so his team were shouting at him and chasing him around the field and then the other team started to come in and shout at him and chase him around the field so you had both teams chasing this fellow around the baseball bat until he ran all the way home. So the father says, when I see the compassionate response in the way people respond to my son, then I know the place in the universe that he belongs. I think the reason why this touches me so deeply is because these were kids and in an instant the game changed. And it wasn't about us against them. Every single person won that day. That little fellow won, and his dad won, and all of those parents in the hall won, and all of the people watching the game won. Because the game changed, and it supported something that otherwise that game would never allow. And it asks a question to each of us in our life. What game are we playing, and who's winning? And who made up the rules? There are times in life where we can play so that everyone wins. For me, when that is happening, that is one aspect of a practice which is mature, 
and integrated. and supportive of the well-being of the collective, independent of their views, independent of their cultural values, independent of their spiritual affiliation. It's a worthwhile question to go home with and ask oneself periodically, what game am I playing? Who's winning? And who made up the rules? So I leave that for our reflection this evening. Wish that we continue to have the strength and the courage and the honesty to ask these questions and to make whatever changes necessary so that the game we're playing is the game that's congruent with rules that we can live with. Do you want to lead it? Do you want to lead it or want me to? Where he got a bit of 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 a bit of
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.